You're listening to the Charge Forward audio blog by Chargebacks 911, bringing you the latest in payments and fraud. To learn more about how Chargebacks 911 can help you reduce chargebacks and recover revenue lost to fraud, visit us online at chargebacks911.com. This episode is a replay of a webinar entitled Dealing with Curveballs and features experts from Chargebacks 911 and Ravelin Technologies. Okay, welcome everyone to the webinar. I want to thank you for taking the time out of your day to join us. Uh, my name is Jared Wright. I'm the marketing lead here at Chargebacks 911. Uh, for those of you unfamiliar with Chargebacks 911, we help merchants by identifying and preventing chargebacks before they happen. And we help merchants uh, refute illegitimate chargebacks once they do happen. Also presenting today is Bob McClear. Um, I'm not sure if I pronounced that right, but uh, he, he's the uh, GM of North America at Ravelin. Um, Bob, do you just want to kind of first correct me for how I butchered your last name and then uh, take a moment to tell us a little bit about what Ravelin does? Yeah, absolutely. So um, it's Bob McAleer, but that's okay. There you um, go. <laughs> yeah, so just a little bit about Ravelin. We're, we're uh, a fraud technology company offering enterprise merchants uh, global fraud uh, risk and payment authentication. Uh, at our core, we leverage machine learning uh, in concert with real-time advanced data linking and rules. One thing uh, that's unique about us is our approach. We're customer-centric. And what this means is that we're scoring each customer rather than just the transaction. And in doing so, we, we consider the entire customer journey when evaluating customer risk. So that's just a high level. That's great. And um, so that without, we're going to get started here in just a minute, but before we do, I just want to go over how the webinar will be structured. The first part of the webinar will include a short presentation from myself and from Bob. Um, this portion will be uh, fairly visual, so it's important, if possible, that you close other windows and give us your attention for that part. The second part of the, part of the webinar will be a Q&A where we answer many of the questions that were submitted. Um, this portion will be less visual, so it's okay if you want to just kind of listen to that part. Please also feel free to submit any questions that you have during the webinar. Um, we promise to answer any questions submitted, if not live, uh, then by email after the webinar. Um, also, just because everybody asked, this webinar will be available for replay starting tomorrow. Uh, not all of the Q&A portion will be included in that recording necessarily, though. So uh, we encourage you to stay with us today so you get the maximum value out of this event. Uh, lastly, this and other webinars will eventually be released in audio form on our podcast. Just search Charge Forward, all one word, with Chargebacks 911, however you listen to podcasts, um, if you're an auditory learner and would like to check out uh, this and other webinars uh, that we've done. <clears throat> okay. Um, I'm, I'm, if, if, you're, if you're new to one of these webinars, um, I like to begin them by asking a, a dumb question. I think in life it's important not to be afraid to ask dumb questions. And since I have this opportunity to speak with different experts, I've uh, committed to making sure that I ask a real question that I have at the top of the uh, uh, webinar. So Bob, do you mind if uh, I ask you a dumb question to kind of kick things off? It scares me that I have to answer the dumb question, but please go ahead. <laughs> I, I think it should be a fairly easy one, but um, so so what I was thinking about is, you know, we we talk a lot in the abstract about the importance of accurate chargeback data in trading training fraud algorithms. I know that it's important, but I've never really heard anyone on your side to kind of explain from your perspective how that really works and and why that data is important and uh, maybe some some of the technical issues behind that. Could could you could you speak to that a little bit? Um, 
uh, why does chargeback data matter and uh, what are some of the issues maybe that Ravelin sees when trying to interpret data from, from a fraud prevention standpoint? Yeah, absolutely. So I think one of the key things is differentiating uh, what's considered a fraud chargeback and what's con or a hostile fraud or organized fraud chargeback and a friendly fraud chargeback. Um, when training your model, and if you're, for instance, um, just see you go by reason code and you recognize a chargeback is fraud just by reason code, and it and it actually is friendly fraud, you're uh, you're basically modeling on behavior that looks just like a good transaction. And when looking at friendly fraud, it's not so much about the credit card; it's about the customer behind the credit card. And so that can be that can be impactful uh, when uh, when uh, building out uh, decision models, and it can uh, adversely impact good customer uh, expectations of generating false positives. That's just one example, but uh, the better, sharper, and more precise the data that you have uh, to feed into your decision systems, the better. That's that's perfect. Now, is is do merchants ever have issues with um, sort of uh, the chargeback data being in a format that you guys can use, or are you guys pretty good at um, you know, whatever their system is, you, you can work with it, or, or does working with a third party kind of help with that a little bit? It does. It, well, it provides consistency. Oftentimes right. we'll have, you know, we'll have clients that'll have challenges. We can do everything from a CSV and uh, up to web hooks and everything uh, onward. It's just what, it's what the client can support. And the key here is scale and automation, especially as you get into larger clients. Uh, it's really important to be able to do this in an automated format uh, to get the information fed in correctly and consistently. Um, and that's all, always something to consider even with smaller clients, the ability to make it as easy as possible so that uh, you're able to uh, enter that data in a timely manner. That's great. That makes a lot of sense. Okay, so I'm going to start uh, mine today with something that I talk about sometimes. It's, it's a place I like to start when I'm when we're partnering with a, a fraud prevention uh, company, a company that's focused on third-party fraud um, versus you know our focus at Chargeback 911, which is essentially on first-party fraud, and, um, and and that's basically the idea that you know when we talk to a merchant or when we create content, um, something that we'll claim is that most chargebacks are caused by friendly fraud. Um, and, you know, there's always a little bit, I always imagine that there's a little bit of tension because I'm sure Bob's got a flyer that he sends out that's got some stats on it that say the exact opposite. <laughs> um, and so, and so one of the things that I'd like to kind of to drill down on and provide some additional context around and say, say, look, for every merchant, it's different, but what, what our goal is, is to get to a place where most of your fraud should be caused by friendly fraud, right? So, um, any statement about what what your particular fraud liabilities are um, is going to be a general statement, and it's not going to really matter for you specifically anyway. Whatever the mean is um, across all merchants, um, and uh, and so really what it's about is that you want to get to a place where most of your chargebacks are caused by friendly fraud, and that's where a company like Ravelin really shines, and and why they're important to the larger chargeback management goals that you have as a company. Um, now, the next one is a, a statement that I like to um, use sometimes, and that's basically that chargeback management is simple. It's understanding the sources of your chargebacks that's hard. And I'm going to come back to this statement a little bit, but I'm going to try to provide some additional context around this to see, to hopefully be able to explain it a little bit clearer. Um, and what, what I mean when I say that chargeback management is simple, um, one of the ways that you can think about it is, look, 
Chargeback management is a three-step process for almost every merchant. The first step is to remedy criminal fraud. Get criminal fraud under control, eliminate it as much possible. The second step is to remedy merchant error. So let's evaluate your operational um, liabilities that may be contributing to chargebacks. Um, things like, you know, your uh, your your phone systems, you know, sometimes there can be issues with phone systems, customer service, not being responsive to uh, emails. Maybe the old email address uh, on your website isn't going to the place that it's supposed to go. And so you're missing out on, um, you know, customer service requests, things like that, eliminating those operational mistakes, shipping mistakes. Um, there's a, there's a, there's a lot of different areas there that that merchants can improve upon. And then when you get to a place, then you have um, the majority of your chargebacks, the vast majority of your chargebacks are friendly fraud. And when you get to that place, that's when you have a lot of success with um, a representment strategy where you can overturn the majority of um, those chargebacks. Um, so it's it's a fairly simple process, and if you can think about it as okay, look from a from a pre-transaction standpoint, those are the types of chargebacks that that a company like uh, Ravelin can help with, and then a post-transaction, those are the type of chargebacks that um, uh, chargebacks 911 can help with. And there's you, you know these different reasons that chargebacks happen, and they kind of all need to be sort of dealt with and understood and anticipated. Um, but the challenge is that from a from a your standpoint really what you're looking at at the end of the day is that you have a bunch of chargebacks, right? It's very difficult for you to understand what the different liabilities are that are contributing to those chargebacks. You don't have that transparency, um, you know, that the, the previous slide sort of insinuated. So uh, something that's important to understand, you know, sort of going back to that that three-piece pie is that, look, every every chargeback should be divided into three essential buckets. Um, and, then, and then a chargeback strategy should be employed of, completely separate chargeback strategy should be employed to deal with the chargebacks that are in one of those three buckets. Um, and reason codes generally, you would think, uh, would be a good way to determine why a chargeback happened. And while reason codes are a good place to start, uh, I'm gonna walk you through sort of sort of the problem with them. Um, now, if, if, if you looked at these reason codes, so if you have uh, uh, fraud and consumer disputes are the primarily the, the the two that um, you're going to have most in. Otherwise, you know, 11 and 12 are going to be, um, you know, fairly uncommon, and those are going to be fairly easy to remedy. But um, the fraud and the consumer disputes, those are the kind of complicated ones. But if uh, reason codes were accurate, you would have all of your criminal fraud, all of your uh, third-party fraud as a fraud reason code, and then you would have uh, some mix of merchant error-friendly fraud in your uh, customer dispute. And you would have a fairly easy sort of problem, right? Because you would be able to, you would know that the, the fraud reason code were fraud and you could deal with them that way. And then you would just, you would you would deal with the uh, customer dispute ones uh, sort of a separate way. Unfortunately, what happens when we look at uh, uh, most merchants is that they have uh, uh, kind of everything all mixed up. And, uh, you know, while maybe the majority of fraud reasons, fraud reason codes are fraud. Um, there's enough friendly fraud and merchant error and other kind of things mixed into there so that you really have no ability to um, remediate these these chargebacks. You have, uh, you know, for example, you're gonna have a lower win rate because you're gonna you know, attempt to dispute chargebacks that are your fault or that are caused by criminal fraud. Um, and um, just like Bob was talking about, you're gonna be using bad data to feed into your fraud algorithm. So your fraud algorithm is gonna be trained on bad data. So even if it does sort of reduce fraud, you're also gonna reduce, you're gonna have a lot of false positives and you're gonna, you're gonna um, uh, you know, 
give up, you're going to forfeit some some revenue um, that uh, that was declined uh, incorrectly. So when you know the first step, and it goes back to those three three steps, is that if you get criminal fraud under control, so you're sort of you, you're fairly confident that you have criminal fraud under control, then that really allows you to sort of look at the remaining chargebacks in the um, uh, fraud category and sort of, and then you're back to where you were before, um, which is why it's super important that, um, that you work with a, um, a, a fraud prevention solution as one of your first steps, provided that you have a criminal fraud liability, not all merchants do. Um, but, but that gets you back to this, this uh, step. And that kind of brings me back to the, to the point that I have, which is it's really not, the, the chargeback management is easy, right? I mean, it's not easy, but it's, it's a simple process. Um, it's the, the challenge that most merchants have is really truly understanding why these chargebacks are happening. Um, and you know, they end up using the wrong tool or employing the wrong strategy to solve the problem. Um, and I don't want to give too much of a plug here, but that's one of the reasons why we've, uh, um, spent a lot of energy creating processes around, um, you know, reason, reason identification, not just reason code identification. Um, and, uh, that intelligent source detection is our sort of process that we, we talk about internally, but that gives us the ability to um, provide some additional insight um, as to the different liabilities that are contributing to chargebacks so that you have a clearer picture and can kind of um, address those chargebacks with the correct um, prevention system or, um, you know, you can dispute them if, if that's necessary. Okay, well, that, with that, I'm going to hand things over to Bob. Um, Bob, you want to take it from here? Let me give you mouse control. Hold on just a second. Thanks a lot, Jared. Okay. You, you should be good to go, a little up and down. Okay, so I'm going to uh, kick off right here, and uh, I think it's pretty safe to say that everyone agrees that 2020 was a lot of things. Uh, <laughs> and one thing for sure in my mind is that it was a, a year of change. Uh, when looking at e-commerce sales, you know, merchants had to cope with massive growth or excel and, and accelerated changes uh, in volatility. Uh, and this makes it really difficult when you're in a fraud team. Uh, one example, Memorial Day. <laughs> a lot of people are sheltering in place. So e-commerce sales uh, notably increased significantly over that weekend. Uh, this highlighted uh, you know, some companies' abilities uh, to scale up and quickly account for that dramatic shift. It also uh, illustrated weaknesses that some orgs had uh, as they lacked the systems to scale or recognize new and emerging fraud trends, uh, which is you know, something that I'm, I'm gonna to try to touch on in a little bit. Another example is buy online, pay in store. Uh, when, I, when I think about that, I, I think about Best Buy doing it, and it was a, it was a cool idea. It was, a, it, was a, you know, it was something that was linked to uh, you know, more of an early adopter thing, and it became, it was, it was starting to trend up and was gaining traction. But for obvious reasons, with COVID, it accelerated. Uh, and this shift in preference, you know, changed how uh, fraud teams have to look at that kind of behavior, especially if you're in any kind of an omni-commerce scenario, whether it's buy online, pay in store, contactless delivery is another example, where this, this goes from being an outlier to the norm, to from a nice to have to a need to have in order to compete. Uh, so I just think that those, and it's accounting for that kind of a change or or curveball uh, is is really important. And then uh, we also at, at Ravelin uh, 
we wanted to understand COVID-19 and, and what impacted fraud ops and merchants worldwide. So we did a survey and uh, completed it in August of last year. Uh, obviously, <laughs> you can download it from our website, very easy to get to, uh, and it's, it's a good read. Uh, but the first thing I noticed uh, was the, the large percentage of C-level respondents and this illustrating uh, the fact that last year was a year of change and um, there's an old adage that change equals opportunity. And so, you know, we know that fraud and payments initiatives uh, are really important going forward, uh, regardless of the size of the company. And then when I look at uh, when another conclusion that this, that this uh, uh, survey brought up uh, was that there's newer forms of fraud and abuse are increasing fast. Uh, so it's, it's not just about online payment fraud. Uh, we're seeing uh, COVID-based or you know, contactless delivery leading to a rise in refund abuse. Um, I think uh, there was a, you know, you know we, we saw, you know, what was it? There was a lot of refund, act, refund abuse activity tied to purchase of TV sets for the Super Bowl only to be returned on that following Monday. Uh, then there's restrictions uh, on, on ordering that meant fraudsters are getting more sophisticated because the, the normal channels uh, you know, have been compromised. So fraudsters have had to you know, resort, you'll see a lot more ATO activity uh, or account takeover activity to go hand in hand with promo abuse and refund abuse. And then obviously COVID has caused some financial hardships and this can change what would otherwise be a good customer thinking whether they, they think it's something that they just need to do or they feel uh, compelled to do. Um, and this leads to you know, another uh, avenue for refund abuse. Now, the, the big challenge here is that these fraud vectors uh, have typically been harder to quantify and to confirm. And so you know, a good fraud strategy is going to uh, consider fraud throughout the customer journey. That's something that I mentioned early on about what we do being customer centric. And this whole, the whole reason for that though, and this is something that, that I, I, I implore people when they're looking at their strategies is to, to be able to look at the fraud journey so that you can look at, at uh, type, different types of fraud or use cases that can happen throughout the customer journey. Not, not just what's a bit, what we see today, but who knows what new strategies are going to emerge in the future. And, and then there's a, a, another thing here. This, this, slide, this slide was interesting uh, to me, but I, I, and I, I use it as a basis for, uh, you know, for another point. Um, yes, fraud teams are growing. You know, this goes hand in hand with the increased attention from C-level executives at, at uh, many of our respondents that they, there is an, uh, seen as an in increase in growth and that's important. Uh, but, uh, you know, uh, it's, that's just part of it. You know, three words for me is grow your strategy. Uh, so we've already talked about explosive growth, rapid changes in customer behavior and preferences uh, that need to be mitigated across multiple fraud vectors. So this is this all has to be considered while supporting good customer expectations. And what's really frustrating, those good customer expectations are changing, they're evolving as well. So the, the expectations around buy online, pay in store or contactless delivery um, is much different than it was just a year ago today. So my, you know, my thoughts here 
are, this is a really good time to you know, not just talk about adding more people to your team, but do a good self-assessment and seek opportunities to improve your strategy and the way that you not only look at fraud, uh, but that you look at payments and you look at uh, customer experience and supporting those expectations for it to drive, of course, customer loyalty. Um, with that in mind, you, it's, there's a lot of people in this marketplace now in the fraud space. Uh, so you want to, you'll, you know, my, my recommendation is look for partners with strong solutions that are suited to your needs, that are fit for your purposes, and that have a good ear that, under, that are ready to listen and understand what your initiatives and objectives are upon which to build partnership. So with that, I'm gonna hand the baton back to our good friend, Jared. Yeah, and actually you and I were talking a little bit earlier um, about, um, you know, I, I think that when the title of this article about um, curveballs, um, you know, I, I think in, in the best of times, fraud is constantly going to be throwing curveballs at yeah. you just because fraudsters are always innovating, um, yes. you know, and, and so so any static solution is, is gonna not, you know, is, is going to be ineffective at dealing with the, the sort of changing fraud landscape. But, you know, when you add on to top of that sort of the environmental change that yes. uh, 2020 has, then that's, you, <laughs> you, you, you said maybe it was a knuckleball because it was a. Uh, it was a curveball yeah. on a curveball, you know. Exactly, exactly. That's that was my point. Yeah. So that's 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 really interesting. So um, okay, well, we had some people that asked some questions, so we'll kind of go through these and do our best to give um, some answers to the to those questions. Um, <clears throat> the first one, uh, the first uh, Heath asked, how how can I deal with customers who filed chargebacks after being denied? Um, refund requests. Um, you and I had talked about this, and you had some ideas about some policies or something that some some decisions that uh, Heath would need to make. Yeah, yeah. And so, so good question, Heath. And uh, the you know the, the first answer, of course, for me is it depends. Uh, but the the other the other important answer is that it's really. What you want to look at here is is what's the impact of uh, what has already happened. So, what's what's tricky with refund um, if they've been de denied a refund and there's clear and present reason for it um, to make sure that you have your ducks in a row and the data necessary to be able to post um, uh, to respond to that chargeback. Um, if they're you know essentially um, they're, they continue to file chargebacks, this is you. If you're tracking information by customer, regardless of method of payment that's being employed, deployed, this can be really helpful to uh, identify um, a, a pattern of behavior and build policy around it. So if you see a velocity or uh, a collection of activity associated with one customer, then that, that can allow you to either block them or have some kind of a step up uh, to uh, mitigate that behavior or, or to hopefully correct the behavior. Yeah, and it wasn't. Did, you had an example from one of your customers where they were dealing uh, with this type of issue, right? They had a yeah, they had a pretty clever solution. Do you, do you... Yeah, well, well, yeah. So what they were doing, what they were seeing is that once they saw um, it was it was in the uh, food space, but once they saw uh, that a you know by, they were looking at information by device, and so they were able to see that several different methods of payment were associated with the same device. 
and uh, they were trying to issue chargebacks, uh, uh, you know, across, you know, for something not as delivered when it was chapter and verse, everything was satisfied. So what they were able to do is uh, essentially just block the customer without blocking, uh, regardless of method of payment, and institute uh, that policy and get them to, uh, and get the customer to come back to them if they truly wanted to use their services going forward. Yeah, you, okay. can, you, can, you can employ some uh, customer service sort of solutions to that. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I, I, th I think that there's a couple of decision points. The first one is, you know, do you, do you refute the chargeback? Um, you know, is the, you know, is the customer, do you, if you have a recurring customer that's coming back and they've been a customer for a year, do you want to put, put that relationship at risk by disputing mm -hmm. that chargeback if it's maybe just a fraction of the total value, the lifetime value of that customer? Um, you know, but but conversely, you know, if if you don't dispute the chargeback, you know, is, is there can you put something in place where um, if that customer comes back, then you you know maybe they're not able to check out without some additional security um, metrics, yeah. or some some different um, um, hoops to jump through. But um, mm -hmm. the good news, you know, if 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 you're saying you know if if you do decide to dispute a chargeback. Um, the fact that they contacted you and that, you know, it's provided that you have clear uh, records of that uh, conversation, you know, something like email exchange or something like that, where they've they've communicated um, that they're dissatisfied. Um, you know, that's not great for you, but that is uh, really compelling evidence that you can use to overturn a chargeback. In fact, um, customer service information is one of the things that we were generally pretty successful, um, you know, utilizing in order to uh, refute chargebacks. So, if, you know, there's a you know, they, they say, hey, the shirt doesn't fit. And you say, okay, well, we have to send it back. You know, there's a 5% five, 5 restocking fee or whatever your policy is. And then they just don't, they don't, uh, they don't agree with that. Um, you know, provided that that policy is clearly stated when they check out, then, um, you know, they, they, if they call their bank and say that they never received it or that they didn't make the transaction, I mean, the, 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 yeah. the fact that they contacted you is great evidence that can be used to overturn it. So um, from a uh, representment standpoint, you're in a pretty good position if that's the case. Um, so this next question is, how long does someone have to dispute a charge? I'm not going to answer this with any type of specificity, because um, to be honest with you, it, it changes all the time, and um, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of variables there. But I, I believe the basic number is 90 days, um, and that's from the card schemes. But each uh, uh, issuing bank can have their own policies depending on you know why you're disputing. And then there's caveats on caveats on caveats for that, so people can dispute charges you know, really up to a year, I think, um, depending if it meets, you know, certain sort of exemptions or certain criteria. Uh, I'll give you one of the primary ones that's an example is, uh, uh, you know, if uh, if you have a recurring billing situation where yeah. you've uh, billed them once a month and then, um, you know, they contact their bank and say that they, they want to dispute all of those transactions, um, then, you uh, they're able to dispute beyond the 90 days all the way back to the beginning of the relationship. I, I think that there's a end point there. I'm not sure when it is. I, I think it might be a year, but um, uh, that, that's why recurring billing a lot of times that's, that's an issue that they struggle with because you have one dispute, but ends up turning into, you know, five or six chargebacks potentially. Um, another instance is that um, it's it's not usually from the transaction date, it's from the expected delivery date. So that is to say, if um, you know you say, hey, um, we're going to deliver in a month, and you do deliver in a month, um, then you have uh, 
90 days from that date. So um, th there's just there's a there's a there's a there's a lot of um, variables there, and uh, also like I said, the different banks um, can have their own policies. They're typically stricter than the the card scheme policies, and um, you know they have they have ultimate jurisdiction over whether or not they're going to accept or process a chargeback. Um, <clears throat> what signs should we look for when uh, trying to determine traditional fraud versus friendly fraud? Um, Bob, did you have um, some some kind of basic advice for Aaron? Yeah, yeah that's, a, that's a really difficult one, but it, it's going to be, especially if you have a customer ID and you're tracking the customer, um, it, versus a guest checkout uh, is something that would be uh, is one factor. The other factor is if, if you are tracking by a customer, what's been their history of, a, of activity, uh, what's been uh, what address has been used, what's been their typical spend. So it's it's all that you know that that aggregated data associated with that customer can help to identify if this individual uh, chargeback or dispute uh, is related to a, a, a fraud that could be a result of a comp takeover, for instance, versus a friendly fraud where, or family fraud, uh, where uh, somebody got a hold of uh, their, their mother's credit card and bought, you know, $400 in video games, uh, you know, is, is a, you know, popular example. Um, it's, and then it's, that, it's having that ability to look at, look at all that detail uh, you know, it, you know, right down to the shopping cart, and then also look at uh, the location information and where did the, where you know, and this is looking at where did the order originate from, and you can look at you can look at the risk associated with a, uh, with a uh, uh, with an order, uh, if it was, for instance, the shipping address was Utah and the order originated from an IP address in Europe. That would be a sign that's probably related to some kind of a fraud ring. This is a very gross example of it, but these are these factors uh, are, have to be looked at in total. You can't just look for one silver bullet or smoking gun, if you will, to determine uh, friendly versus traditional fraud. And it typically does require a little bit of extra research beyond just looking at the reason code. Yeah, the I, think, I think I agree with all that. I think I think the point to kind of um make here is um to sort of clarify because i i think oftentimes when people talk about friendly fraud one of the ways that people can describe it is sort of you know i contact my bank in order to try to get something for free um but that description really accounts for a very small percent of like the most malicious versions of friendly fraud a lot of times it's it's what bob was talking about family fraud um it could be a mistake you know i contacted my bank i didn't recognize a charge um or or it's just a dissatisfied customer um and so when they made the purchase they had every intention of um you know remaining a good customer not committing fraud but um they became dissatisfied and just unfortunately in the world you know they Customers have been trained that it's sometimes easier to contact your bank than it is to contact the merchant. Um, yeah. So from that standpoint, really, you're not going to have any evidence that the transaction is is problematic until until you actually receive the chargeback. Um, yeah, that's 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 the big point, Jared. Is yeah, uh, you know, it is is just that it, you brought up the point that that typical what's the path of least resistance to get their money back, and so they're like. Well, I didn't want to wait in line to talk to somebody or be in an email or web chat uh, to work through this I, when I can just click a, a box uh, on my on my online statement 
and the disputes uh, and it triggers a dispute and then my money gets back in my account without any work. And yeah. so that's a pretty popular. Okay, this next one is one we actually get a lot. Um, this one's uh, uh, particularly sort of this person, Thomas is obviously a little bit frustrated, but it's, the question is why do banks side with cardholders um, when we have solid evidence, including recordings, contracts, invoices, et cetera? So, so, so I, I, you know, first of all, I, I want to say I feel your pain, Thomas. This is a, this is kind of why, um, you know, this is sort of our bread and butter, um, you know, figuring out how to get get these, uh, you know, illegitimate chargebacks overturned is is what we do. It's why people pay us, um, but it is a challenge. And even if you hire us or you know a, a, a company to do it. Um, you're, you're not going to be successful 100% of the time, even if you should be. And there's a few reasons for that. I think the first, and the you know probably the, the most obvious reason is that the the ultimate decision maker, at least with that first re representment, is the issuing bank. So that's the bank that has the relationship with the cardholder. Um, and so the cardholder is their customer. I mean, they're they're serving their customer. Uh, so unless you have a very clear uh, case um, and are able to communicate it in a way that is, uh, you know, just impossible for them to refute. Um, then they're gonna they're gonna err on the side of their customer. I mean, it's just just the reality of it. Um, the second thing is that you know the chargeback uh, processing departments at um, really any bank, but particularly issuing banks. I mean, they're they're kind of overworked, um, so they're having to process. Uh, you know, everybody has a different format. You know, they have sometimes these are five or six page documents and they need to really make a fairly snap decision. So, um, you know, a lot of times if if your document is not clear, uh, if your case is not concise, um, you know, it's going to get lost in the shuffle. Um, and then the, the other the other the third factor that can play into um, the the issue is the uh, reputation that you have as a merchant. Um, you know, these there's not that many issuing banks. I mean, there's plenty of them, but there are some really big ones. And um, uh, you know, so so somebody so uh, uh, you you may develop a, a reputation. So if you that is to say, if you're getting enough chargebacks where they've seen your cases, you know, and you've maybe you you submitted some cases that weren't probably your best, or you you uh, attempted to dispute some uh, instances of actual criminal fraud. So you you um, you just put some bad cases through. Um, pretty quickly, people, you know, you, you'll get a reputation within these departments as, um, you know, being sort of not not the best merchant. Um, and so then they really won't look at your cases um, with and give them the due diligence that they should. Uh, and, and that's just an unfortunate reality. So you need to be careful about that. Also, and to dispute the illegitimate cases, because another way that you can develop a re reputation is just by accepting accepting the chargebacks. Um, so if you if you don't ever dispute a case, then people may just assume um, that that you know you're you yeah. deserved it that you sh you should be receiving these chargebacks that you're doing something that's making customers really upset. Yeah. And, um, and by the and furthermore, by the charter that they're held that the issue makes are held to with with the brands, whether it's Mastercard or Visa, American Express, it's to it, it's in a card not present e-commerce scenario. Unless there's 3D secure being used, there's no, they do not view that transaction, regardless of the preponderance of evidence that you shared here, Thomas, as being authenticated. They, you know, and so, so they're, they're, they're going to, they're going to stick to the brand and, and represent the cardholder. 
uh, to the end, even if it's a 0.5 or 0.1% chance that the cardholder's uh, uh, actually in the right. They're, that's that's the, the, the line that they have. And, and, so, and obviously, as what Jared just shared here, you're, you know, no two issuers are going to respond to the same to the same information that was shared with them. Uh, some issuers are going to be more uh, uh, leaning or biased towards their cardholders and less receptive to a compelling case than others. Yeah. <clears throat> okay. This next one is how to dispute friendly fraud, which uh, I think is a pretty big. Uh, that's that's a that's that's an entirely different. Um, webinar, but I'll just talk, you know, share a couple of ideas off the top here, and then, um, uh, uh, Marin, you're probably going to have to come back uh, a different day where we sort of talk in a little bit more detail about that. Um, just also know, I mean, we're not, the, there are actual, like, tricks and tips and stuff. We don't typically share those because those are ones um, that, you know, we like to employ on behalf of our uh, merchants. We don't ever we don't ever want to lean too far into the idea that yeah it's really easy if you could do this and this um but um uh, just just generally speaking um i think we kind of talked about it a little bit um in the last question i think that the the sort of overall principles are um um you know be concise make sure that you're disputing the 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 reason code so even if you know that the um it's a, a the reason code is inaccurate. Um, make sure that you're responding. So if they say, you know, that uh, the package wasn't received, then make sure that you include that uh, delivery confirmation. Um, now, delivery confirmation in and of itself usually isn't enough unless there's a signature. Um, but uh, you know, make sure that that's where you start when you're compiling your case. Um, and then um, make sure that you have all of the corroborating information um, that you would need to do. So, for example, if if you have a return policy, um, make sure that you explain um, as quickly and briefly as possible with photos, if you can, um, you know, how the merchant would see that return policy. So make sure that that is, um, you know, put forward. Now, if you have a return policy that they need to triple click down into and it's down at the end of a big, long, long um Thing, then that's not, of course, you're not, you're not going to be able to win that dispute if that's the primary evidence that you're going to put forward. So if you, if you have something like a, you know, a strict return policy, make sure that you put that on the checkout page so that you know that that information has been seen. Maybe you even have them agree to the terms um, if that's important to you, um, if, if being able to, to successfully refute those cases is important to you. Um, and then the other thing I talked about a little bit earlier, I think is important that, um, that you remember is that your, uh, some of your best evidence is gonna come from your customer service department. So if you have uh, chats, make sure you're capturing the IP from, that the chat comes in from, um, make sure that you're recording all of that data. Uh, make sure that you're recording, you know, um, the user data when they're on your website and things like that. Uh, make sure you've ruled out criminal fraud, um, you know, so that you don't have sort of you don't develop a, a negative reputation. And um, and then that's basically it. I don't have. I mean, there's so many mm -hmm. different varieties of friendly fraud, and there's you know the idea that there's just going to be one magic bullet or some magical phrase that you put in a case is going to be is is just i think it's just fallacious thinking so um anyway i you know i i don't know bob do you have is there anything yeah. that you guys talk about there is there a tip or this yeah. i missed 
Disputing friendly fraud is, is a challenge, as you as you just clearly articulated. It's no it's no picnic. Uh, I think it's important to to go hand in hand with disputing friendly fraud is is understanding, especially with serial friendly fraudsters, people that love your service but don't necessarily want to pay for it or always pay for it. Uh, this is where it's important, or it's important to have the ability to uh, assess your data in real time and be able to build policy so that when you see that customer, you can decide how you want to, how you want to handle that customer, whether you want to escalate them or whether you want to turn them down. Uh, that's, you know, I don't know, I don't know at what point you decide that you, you no longer want to work with them, but at least you want to redefine the relationship so that um, you, you can, uh, you have a better foot to stand on. And that could involve, if you're a, an omni-channel player, that could involve the ability where the client has to come in and use a chip-enabled card at a chip-enabled at a chip, read, at, at a chip uh, terminal to make the purchase, for instance, if you really wanted to go to one, one extreme. But it's, it is about establishing policy of a, towards the customer behind the friendly fraud. Long story short. Yeah, I think that's it. So, so we're we're at a, a quarter till right now. So I'm just gonna we're gonna end this here. We had a couple more questions that were submitted, but we'll make sure we get those uh, those answers out to you. I'm gonna skip back up here to the beginning in case anybody wants to reach out, um, has any questions uh, that they want to, uh, uh, they can send it to 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 Bob or me directly. I'll be happy to answer and and do everything I can to, um, you know, if, if I don't know the answer, I'll make sure to put you in touch with somebody that does. Um, Bob, thank you for for joining us. I think it was a good webinar. Um, that's that's it. Pleasure. Thank you, guys, and uh, have a great weekend, everyone. All right. Bye, guys.